0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from the Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 68, the book of Matthew, chapter 20. We began Matthew chapter 20 last week and we dealt with the parable of the fair farmer who paid the same amount of money to workers that had labored from dawn to dusk equally as workers that had worked perhaps no more than an hour now the exhausted workers that had worked all day were not happy with that farmer feeling it was just not a fair arrangement the farmer responds that it's his vineyard it's his money and it's he paid the workers exactly that he hired, exactly what he promised that he would, and such was his prerogative to do. Further, in the order in which the workers were paid, was that the ones that were paid to work all day were the last ones to get paid, while the ones who worked only an hour got paid first. So the parable ends with the words. Thus, the last ones will be first and the first last. And since the parable began, the kingdom of heaven is like, in the sense of what the kingdom of heaven can be compared to, then we understand that the purpose of the parable is to show that the first shall be last and the last first. This is a characteristic of the kingdom of heaven. And since every parable has a moral one and only one moral the moral to this one is that the operation of the kingdom of heaven is going to be a true reversal of how we see things happen on earth this will be especially so regarding societal hierarchy that is those who are last on earth in this present age will be first in the kingdom of heaven those who are first in a societal hierarchy in this present age will be last in the kingdom of heaven see this reversal will also be reflected in how leaders lead as we see addressed in later verses of matthew 20. now i want to address a question that came up after the last lesson so that i can be clear When in Matthew chapter 19 I spoke of the rich man that wanted eternal life and that Yeshua made it plain that one must obey the law and follow him to attain it, I did not intend to imply that there's a required sequence of a seeker having to first obey the law and only afterwards determining to follow Christ. The context for my Remarks were in light of the story of what Christ told the young rich man to do. So, no kind of sequence was meant as some kind of salvation rule. All right, let's move on and reread some of Matthew chapter 20. Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to start reading at verse 17 and go to the end. Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 17. As Yeshua was going up to Yerushalayim, he took the twelve Talmudim aside by themselves and said to them, as they went on their way, We are now going up to Yerushalayim, where the Son of Man will be handed over to the head Kohanim, the head priest, the high priest, and the Torah teachers. They will sentence him to death. They will turn him over to the Goyim, to the Gentiles, who will jeer at him, Beat him, execute him on a stake as a criminal, but on the third day he'll be raised. Then Zabdai's sons came to Yeshua with their mother, and she bowed down, begging a favor from him. And he said to her, What do you want? And she replied, Promise that when you become king, these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right, the other on your left. But Yeshua answered, You people don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, We can. And he said to him, Yes, you will drink my cup. But to sit on my right and on my left is not mine to give. It is for those for whom my Father has prepared it. Now, when the other ten heard about this, they were outraged at the two brothers. But Yeshua called them and said, You know that among the goyim those who are supposed to rule them become tyrants and their superiors become dictators. And among you it must not be like that. On the contrary, whoever among you wants to be a leader must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed Yeshua and two blind men sitting by the side of the road heard that he was passing by and shouted, Son of David, have pity on us. Well, the crowd scolded him, told him, be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have pity on us. And Yeshua stopped and he called them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, open our eyes and filled with tenderness yeshua touched their eyes and instantly they received their sight and followed him verse 17 opens with as yeshua was going up to jerusalem to jerusalem well here jesus begins his final journey to the holy city well where he will celebrate the Passover festival for the last time. And all that Yeshua has been born for was leading him to these next few days that would change the history of Israel and of all mankind forever. Now, what I want to highlight here are the words, going up. Okay, See, Jerusalem sits atop a hill with a height of 2,500 feet. Yet, that's not the highest place in Israel. There are other places, some of them like Mount Hermon, that rises to as much as 10,000 feet. Now, since at the moment Yeshua was in Jericho, which lies some 900 feet below sea level, obviously He was going up in order to arrive in Jerusalem. However, when we read in the Bible and look at other ancient Hebrew and, and and Jewish documents, we see that when someone goes up to Jerusalem, it's always described as going up. And as David Stern says in his commentary on this verse, it wouldn't matter if a Hebrew was beginning his journey from Mount Everest. He would always still be going up when he went to Jerusalem. This is because the going up had nothing to do with altitude, but rather it's meant in a spiritual sense, it's a high place, spiritually. Even the word used in our time when Jews migrate back to Israel is aliyah, which means going up. The same story is told in Mark 10.32-45. through 45. Let's see how Mark reports it. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to start reading at verse 32 through 45. Mark chapter 10, just a few pages over, starting at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Yerushalayim, and Yeshua was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed and those following were afraid. So again, taking the twelve along with Him, He began telling them what was about to happen to Him. We are now going up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be handed over to the head priest and the Torah teachers. They will sentence Him to death and turn Him over to the Gentiles, and who will jeer at Him, spit on Him, beat Him, and kill Him. But after three days He will rise. Now Yaakov and Yochanan, James and John, the sons of Zavdi came up to him and said, Rabbi, we'd like you to do us a favor. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, when you are in your glory, let us sit with you, one on your right, the other on your left. But Yeshua answered, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I am drinking or be immersed with the immersion that I must undergo? And they said to him, We can. And Yeshua replied, The cup that I am drinking, you will drink. And the immersion I am being immersed with you, you will undergo. But to sit on my right and on my left is not mine to give you. Rather, it is for those, it is for, those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten other heard about this, they became outraged at Yaakov and Yochanan. But Yeshua called them to him and said to them, you know that among the goyim, those who are supposed to rule to rule them become tyrants and their superiors become dictators. But among you, it must not be like that. On the contrary, whoever among you wants to be a leader must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must become everyone's slave. For the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Now you're going to have noticed several differences between Mark's and Matthew's versions, meaning among which we're going to address just a few as as we go along. Now perhaps this is a good time to remind you that in the 21st century, the current fad among Bible scholars is to say. That Matthew copied much of his gospel from Mark. There is no evidence for this, except that, in some places, Mark's gospel has more to say about a particular event. In fact, the earliest church fathers, very earliest, all agree that Matthew's gospel was the first to be written. However, the modern Bible scholars dismiss this as these men's erroneous belief. So the only real proof that modern Bible academics have to offer is that most of them agree with one another. That Mark was first. And so this agreement rises to the level of fact. You know, majority rules. Now I remind you of this because where there are actual conflicts between Matthew and Mark, and there are precious few, I hold Matthew as the more authoritative. Well, on their journey from Jericho to Jerusalem, Christ pulls His twelve disciples away from the watchful gaze of the crowds, and He wants to tell them for a third time that He's going up to Jerusalem to be betrayed and to die. He goes into a little more detail this time, than He has until now, why does He tell His disciples yet again about His coming death? It was to prepare them, but it was also to focus their thinking upon all that they had seen and experienced with Him over the last couple of years, what they would soon witness, and how they had been called to follow Him and to be fully devoted to him now once again we find yeshua speaking in the third person about himself the son of man will be handed over he says now clearly at least to us in hindsight he is identifying himself with daniel's son of man that goes to heaven and sits at the father's the ancient of days right hand jesus also mentions crucifixion for the first time That the gentiles will be complicit in it and that he will be jeered at and mocked now since he will be in jerusalem at passover when the city is just full to overflowing with jewish pilgrims obviously the jews will be his primary audience that jeers and mocks his suffering although the roman soldiers will as well There's not going to be any glorious martyrdom involved, only pain. This Messiah is indeed a man of sorrows, not a victorious military leader as the Jews had hoped for had expected for so long. Yeshua repeats, he's going to be raised from the dead after three days. So instead of using the term that indicates the sign of Jonah as he did earlier, of three days and three nights, he simply says he'll be raised from death on the third day. Now we need to be careful not to read into these words any kind of intended precision of time in which the minutes between daytime and nighttime, light and darkness, are intended to be noticed. All to say that Jesus' desire words certainly put a damper on the normally enthusiastic demeanor of the trip to jerusalem for the annual feast of passover and unleavened bread we hear not a word of acknowledgement of yeshua's dramatic statement of his impending death from his disciples not a word it's almost as though it went in one ear out the other their minds were otherwise occupied with things that interested them more Even more damning, a couple of Jesus' 12 disciples continue this issue of status that was first raised by Peter and by others among the inner circle of leadership hierarchy about what happens to their benefit once Christ becomes king. I mean, truly, these men are tone deaf. there's something else we have to keep in mind. It is that what Yeshua has been recently explaining about his inevitable fate is just simply not taking root in these 12 men. These 12 disciples that we all hold so high, so exalted, and celebrated within the church. See, it's my opinion that what Jesus says to them is just so distant, from the expectations of a messiah that they had all held since childhood, expectations that had been a central part of Jewish culture for centuries, and it was only heightened now by the occupation of Rome, that what he was saying to them just wasn't fathomable. Now, while I don't want to take the illustration too far, in the mid-20th century a fellow named Adolf Hitler wrote a book detailing his plan to restore Germany to European respect and even domination and it included his hatred of the Jews and the genocide that he determined they were due now most people that read Mein Kampf didn't allow the parts that seemed so monstrous to register in their minds not even within the bulk of the German Jewish community that would become his target. It is because, you see, the human mind often works in such a way that we filter things out that don't fit our preconceptions or our hopes. We water down things. cannot mean what it sounds like it means because it's just too severe to contemplate so it just can't be real i suspect this may in some ways describe the 12 disciples ability to just kind of brush aside yeshua's description of his imminent death and their inability to process what it truly means for them but also for all humanity It adds insult to injury, Matthew 20, 20 has the mother of the brothers James and John coming to Jesus on their behalf with a request. Mark 10 on the, has, has a little different scenario. Mark 10, 35 says, Yaakov and Yakkanan the sons of Zavdai, came up to him and said, Rabbi, we would like you to do us a favor. So Mark makes no mention of the brother's mother, it's possible for us to know uh not that we just can't know which accounts more accurate but likely the mother was present with her sons either way james and john are made to look pretty petty and ignorant for this great passion drama that that is just about to unfold in their sight then matthew we must take it as meaning that the mother came to Christ because her sons asked her to be their advocate. And these weren't young boys. They would have been much too old to have their mother come in and take over their lives in such a way that they weren't on board. So they must have put her up to it. This explains why Jesus responds not to her. He responds directly to James and John instead. The mother proceeds to ask that when Yeshua becomes king, would he promise her that he would make her two sons the highest rank of leadership within the royal leadership group? That is, it it was standard that the person who sat at the king's right hand was of the highest status, the one to his left of the next highest status. These were the closest of the king's inner circle. Now, there's a couple of things we can glean from this. Since Jesus had told His twelve that He was the Messiah and they were to keep it a secret, obviously these two sons had blabbed it to their mother. Now, further, because it was Jewish tradition, it was backed up biblically, That the messiah would be king of god's kingdom which they took to mean a davidic king of a reborn nation of israel then by her believing that yeshua was the foretold messiah of course he would soon be made king after expelling rome from the holy land this is further proof the disciples were mostly clueless About Christ's mission and what was about to go down. And the reason for this is that the Jewish traditions about a Messiah were still the deeply embedded lens through which these disciples viewed both the office of the Messiah and what he would do. So the Galilean Zivdai family, Zebedee in English, Bibles, were seeking positions of high honor that would drastically elevate their social status and hopefully economic well-being from that of mere fishermen that had to fight daily to keep food on the table and in light of what christ has told them is about to happen to him you know this is a pretty shameful response and it ignores his teaching about the virtue of humility being the primary characteristic of one who hopes to be a member of the kingdom of heaven so mom steps forward jesus says what do you want she asks for a special favor for her two sons and christ says and i paraphrase this you folks are so far out in left field you have no idea what you're asking he finishes the thought with, Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Some Bible versions add the words, To be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Now, these additional words were never in the book of Matthew before the 800s AD. They were added by some later Christian editor taken from the book of Mark, 10 38, 1038, no doubt. So that the two Gospels would harmonize better. Or, on the other hand, since we do not have a copy of Mark any earlier than from the fourth century, it's entirely possible, it's probable in my mind, that those words were never originally in Mark either. Rather, my speculation is that they were first added to Mark by a Christian editor in the third or fourth century, and then another 400 or so years later. They were transposed over into Matthew. Why do I think that? Because this is such an odd sounding phrase and suggestion. There's just too much Christianese in it. I mean, for, for the Jews, immersion, baptizing, was for one thing only ritual immersion to combat ritual impurity caused by sin or by being infected with some kind of uncleanness. But that was not what christianity thought or thinks of immersion baptizing gentile christians from the, about the third or fourth century onward thought of it more or less the way we do in modern times that is baptizing is a church sanctified ceremony that is part public announcement of one's faith in jesus accompanied by a symbolic drowning that ends our life of reliance on ourselves and instead we take on a new life with the character of Christ. I mean, that certainly is not what's being depicted in this scene. All right, with Yeshua and his disciples, so I feel fairly confident that this phrase about baptizing was added a few hundred years later, first to Mark, then a few more centuries it found its way into Matthew. We don't know for sure about Mark, we know absolutely for sure about Matthew, that it was injected. But what does Yeshua mean about the disciples drinking the cup He's about to drink? You know, in some ways there's an irony going on here. The confused and the distracted disciples may think that a glorious banquet to inaugurate their King Yeshua, which of course involves liberal wine drinking, well, this must be what he's referring to. Yet what Yeshua is actually speaking about is a cup full of suffering and death. And again, the disciples are simply oblivious to it. The Bible speaks often about drinking a cup that is full of God's wrath. And therefore of pain and human suffering jeremiah twenty-five fifteen. for here is what adonai the god of israel says to me take this cup of the wine of fury from my hand and make all the nations where i'm sending you drink it ezekiel 23 verses 32 and 33 adonai elohim says you will drink from your sister's cup a cup both deep and wide full right up to the brim with scorn and derision filling you with drunkenness and sorrow A cup of horror and devastation, the cup of your sister Shomron, Samaria. Isaiah 51, 17. Awake, awake, stand up, Jerusalem. At Adonai's hand you drank the cup of his fury. You have drained to the dregs the goblet of drunkenness. So I I could go on. There's many more biblical references like this, but you get the idea. this is the fearful nature of what yeshua was talking about here when he speaks of drinking the cup often Bible commentators say this is looking ahead to the Christian sacrament of communion but see that's what happens when we peel away the Jewish context spiritualize it and then make it into a Gentile ceremony the disciples respond by saying, yes, they can drink from his cup. Might they have been, drink, uh, been thinking that he was talking about the Passover ceremonial Seder that included drinking cups of wine? That's possible. But even that would have been a strictly, in, in a strictly Jewish Passover feast context. Now, for sure, they were not thinking <laughs> of their own suffering and martyrdom. Yeshua responds to the disciples saying that they can drink from his cup by saying that they will. Now, of course, we have a double meaning going on here. What they are thinking, while they are thinking that he means that the, about the ceremonial Passover cups are perhaps as part of an inauguration ceremony, as as king he is meaning it metaphorically as the cup of pain and suffering that he's going to experience and since yeshua was mainly talking to james and john then he is saying that they are going to experience pain and suffering which they both eventually did but in different ways now john likely the writer of the gospel of john And the epistles of john as well as the book of revelation suffered a great deal but he died a natural death in his 90s so far as we know james died a martyr's death just a few years after christ in 44 a.d now to be clear this james is not the james that was the brother of jesus nor likely is he the one who wrote the book of james it is all but certain That the book of james was written by yeshua's brother james whose name really wasn't james it was jacob anyway hey jimmy you want to come out and play i don't think so yeshua continues to say that it really isn't up to him to determine who occupies the places of honor among the jesus movement or um, in the kingdom of heaven Rather, He once again defers it to His Father. See, this was not in the sense of deference for the sake of etiquette, but rather because a clear hierarchy of divine authority is laid out all through the Gospel accounts, beginning with God the Father as the head, and Yeshua as His subordinate. But naturally, as verse 24 states, The other disciples were furious at what James and John were attempting to do. As a group, the disciples had already been down this road at least once before in the Who's the Greatest debate, and now it pops up again. Were they outraged at the timing of such a request, coming immediately following Yeshua, telling them He's going to have a terrific death? No, it was because James and John approached Jesus wanting to be given special honor and position that would naturally put them in authority over the other ten, should Jesus agree with it. That's what upset them. Well, given that Yeshua has now taught them how the kingdom of heaven is going to operate in reverse compared to the present world systems, He shows patience. He gives them an example of why it's wrong to wrestle for status among themselves. He tells them. Notice how Gentile rulers rule. First you have the powerful who lord it over the people. Then you have even more powerful rulers who rule over the rulers. It's dog-eat-dog accompanied by never-ending power struggles. These Gentile rulers rule with an iron fist And they don't do it to the benefit of the people they rule over, but for themselves. And a short phrase that I think best describes the mode of how Christ says that Gentiles rule is that they're power-hungry. So it must be that in the Kingdom of Heaven, ruling and rules and rulers will behave in an opposite manner because they harbor an opposite mindset. In the kingdom, the one who wants to lead must do so as a servant to others. This is a reflection of the quality Yeshua earlier said that he wants all who want to be members and leaders of the kingdom. They must display humility Matthew At that moment the Talmudim, the disciples, came to Yeshua and asked, "'Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' And he called a child to him and stood him among them and said, "'Yes, I tell you that unless you change and become like little children, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven.' So the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is whoever makes himself as humble as a child." Back to Matthew 20, verse 26. The mention of the leader being a slave or a servant to others isn't meant in terms of a purchased slave that has minimal rights. Rather, it means someone who serves others, and in this case, the nature of the service is voluntary. Now, to finish the thought, Jesus then circles back to the words he used to complete his fair farmer parable. When he says that the first shall be last and the last first he says whoever wants to be first must be your servant verse 28 yeshua further fleshes out who he is what his current purpose is and then how the two connect he says for the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Now, one of the things he's saying is, be like me. Use me as your role model. But then he also adds the element that the reason and the purpose for his existence and his death is to be a ransom for many. Now, as believers, Christians, Messianics, most of us think we have a pretty good handle on what that means. However, it is less cut-and-dried than you might think. See, the use of the term ransom in Greek is lutron. and lutron presents the idea of a deliverance by means of a payment, and in the Roman world it mostly concerned a bondservant paying his way out of his servitude or a prisoner of war being bought out of his captivity for a price. Now in the Hebrew world, it more spoke about things like paying the half shekel temple tax or the price paid for the newborn male newborn, the firstborn to buy him back from God or in the time of Moses, it could mean paying money as an alternative to having one's life taken from him if he should kill someone. In Leviticus 25-26, the concept even extends to property that could be bought back from a debt holder. And we must not let the Greek language of the Gospel accounts lead us into thinking that Jews, Christ and His disciples were thinking in Greek and Roman terms. Rather, what is being spoken is dealing in Hebrew terms inside Hebrew culture. So we must think about the meaning of ransom more as we would in the purpose of the Levitical Asham sacrifice, that is, as something based on the Torah, on the Law of Moses, as a ritual payment of appeasement to God for the commission of a sin. No doubt Christians usually refer to Christ's execution on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And thus the thought is that no further sacrifice is needed, as with more animals on the altar. And I think that's correct to a point. However, too much we think of the word sacrifice in terms of a selfless act, of our giving up something we want or need in exchange for someone else benefiting from it like perhaps a parent we forego a needed vacation instead use the money to to pay for something our child dearly wants or needs however that is not the hebrew sense of the word sacrifice or ransom for them it was more literal even more spiritually oriented it had to do with complying with the Law of Moses, usually by means of providing an innocent animal to be burned up on the temple altar to deal with their sin. See The sham sacrificial offering is what I prefer to call in English the reparations offering because a God-worshipper is paying reparations to appease God because of a sin they committed against Him. It has to do with misbehavior, things we do wrong in God's eyes, and thus we must pay a price to compensate Him for that. The good news was that the compensation required was an animal, and that animal's life substituted for the life of the sinner. Now, the really interesting thing about the Asham sacrifice is that by doing this particular kind of sacrifice, the result is the forgiveness of the trespass, of the sin. So this is the sense we ought to take what Yeshua meant when He said that He would give His life as a ransom for many. His life was given as a payment of reparations as the Asham sacrifice. For many the payment owed to god for our misbehavior for our sins on behalf of all those who trust in christ's ability to do so now all of what we've been reading and i've been teaching seems to very clearly point to yeshua's interpretation and his use of isaiah 53 isaiah being the prophet He quoted and paraphrased the most. Isaiah 53 is one of the most dramatic portrayals of why we need a Savior and what our Savior would endure that exists in the Bible. Turn to that chapter in your Bible. I want you to follow along with me as we read it together. Isaiah chapter 53. Take a minute and get there. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Who believes our report? To whom is the arm of Adonai revealed? For before him he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He was not well formed or especially handsome. We saw him, but his appearance didn't attract us. People despised and avoided him, man of pains well acquainted with illness. Like someone from whom people turned their faces, he was despised. We didn't value him. In fact, it was our diseases he bore, our pains from which he suffered. Yet we regarded him as punished, stricken, afflicted by God. But he was wounded because of our crimes, he was crushed because of our sins. The disciplining that makes us whole fell upon him, and by his bruises we are healed. We all, like sheep, went astray. We turned, each one, to his own way, yet and I laid on him the guilt of all of us. Though mistreated, he was submissive, he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to be slaughtered, like a sheep silent before its shears, He didn't open his mouth. After forcible arrest, sentencing, he was taken away. None of his generation protested his being cut off from the land of the living for the crimes of my people, who deserve the punishment themselves. He was given a grave among the wicked. In his death, he was with a rich man. And although he'd done no violence, he'd said nothing deceptive, yet it pleased Adonai to crush him with illness, to see if he would present himself as a guilt-offering. If he does, he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days, and at his hand Adonai's desire will be accomplished. After this ordeal he will see satisfaction. By his knowing pain and sacrifice my righteous servant makes many righteous. It is for their sins that he suffers. Therefore I will assign him a share with the great, he will divide the spoil with the mighty, for having exposed himself to death and being counted among the sinners while actually bearing the sin of many and interceding for the offenders. Can you imagine this? Written 700 years before Yeshua was born. Now certainly, not every question we might think to ask is answered in Yeshua's pronouncement of His death and resurrection. As Davies and Allison point out, Matthew doesn't so far explain just exactly what the condition of the many is that they need Christ's sacrifice or who are the many or why is the payment of a ransom necessary especially since the law of Moses proposed a sacrificial system of animals that was in full operation in Christ's era to whom is the ransom paid see some early Christian writers and fathers like John of Damascus says the ransom was paid to God but (laughs) others Like Origen and Gregory said, no, it was paid to Satan. Can you believe that? Early church fathers. So was this forgiveness offered through the death of Yeshua effective for people immediately? Or was it only at the time of the great judgment? This hasn't been covered yet in Matthew. Now, in our day, we look back, Yeshua's sacrifice, and we think on these questions that come out of it in our prayerful reflections. However, for the people of Yeshua's time, such sacrifice was not about mental reflections, maybe not even its spiritual meaning, but rather, ritual sacrifice was a required behavior of the law of Moses that insisted upon personal action and participation participation they did it because they were supposed to do it as observant jews and one has to wonder who actually gained the most those like us who can sort of sit back read the historical bible and, and joyfully reflect on the spiritual meaning of Christ's act, what it's done for us all, or those Hebrews who had to deal with a journey to the temple, all the costs involved, and the smelly and bloody ordeal of the death of an animal that characterizes the true and terrible nature of sacrifice. Now, before we move on to the next section of Matthew chapter 20, I'd like you to consider this. In this and earlier chapters, we have uncovered a series of things that Christ says to His disciples that reveals who He is and what He's going to do. He is going to be a king over God's kingdom. He is going to drink, From a cup of pain and suffering he's gonna die on a roman execution stake with both jew and gentile involvement that he came to be a servant to people for their benefit not to lord over them like a gentile dictator and that he's going to voluntarily sacrifice his own life for a greater good for the many these things were said in different contexts in both the simple literal sense pshat and in the deeper hint sense remez and some of his actions would affect some people's lives right away and others at a future time and just how much future is ambiguous thus extracting meaning can necessarily be challenging and has led to scores if not hundreds of christian doctrines that attempt to fit this this complex puzzle together see but matthew had an expectation of his jewish readers to put these pieces of information together in light of their own hebrew history according to what the holy book they had possessed for centuries the Tanakh, the old testament told them. Matthew anticipated that these Jewish believers would be able to make the intricate but sometimes blurry connections on their own that more often did not defy a Christian layperson, even a Bible scholar, to make. So Matthew didn't go out of his way to make those connections, even to analyze them, For his jewish audience see much too often i think christian bible teachers and ordained pastors will quickly kind of drift from these inspired words of the gospels and instead find ways to redirect the meaning of these inspired words that's eluding them into allegories that make for very good storytelling browsing sermons they don't necessarily reflect the original intent of what's trying to be communicated. Only when we endeavor to understand the Bible, Old and New Testaments, in its various historical settings, can it be properly understood. Well, the final event of chapter 20, again involves a Jesus miracle healing. We're told that as Jesus... His disciples and a crowd that had been following him left Jericho to begin their steep climb up to Jerusalem. Two blind men that were sitting on the trail shouted out to Yeshua to get his attention. Now, these blind men were not sitting there as, as travelers resting, they were not kind of getting their energy back as they went up to the Passover festival, but rather as beggars they were sitting in a strategic location, a highly traveled road. These blind, among those with other kinds of disabilities, usually had only one way to survive, and that was through begging. In a scene reminiscent of an earlier encounter of Yeshua with the blind, they yelled out, Son of David, have pity on us! The pity they sought was that this widely known miracle healer would heal them of their blindness. And it bears repeating that the moniker that they used, Son of David, see, was not meant in a messianic way. Rather, it was invoking the name and the spirit of Solomon, David's son, that tradition said was a miracle healer. It also bears repeating that only until the last couple of chapters matthew has fashioned his vision of jesus as primarily a miracle healer and a purveyor of great wisdom only recently has matthew added the role of messiah and what that entails to this list of christ's traits and his purposes so the crowd is said to have scolded the blind beggars for shouting out as they did viewing them as an annoyance but the beggars responded defiantly by shouting out even louder and in his typical concern for the underprivileged and the disabled he asked what they wanted from him and they said lord he said they said to him, lord open our eyes now It is certainly tempting for believers to allegorize this short phrase and give it a highly charged spiritual meaning. But first, to think that by saying, Lord, that these blind men are calling Jesus Lord in the sense that Christians today do that is incorrect. Rather, for them, Lord was like saying, Sir. It was a title of respect, not of divinity. Second, by saying, open our eyes, they meant it very literally. They didn't want to be blind anymore. It was a physical eye opening they sought, not a spiritual one. Now, unfortunately, so often this passage is said to mean that the blind men were spiritually blind, and that's what Yeshua healed them of. Even so, Yeshua leaned down touched their eyes. They were instantly healed so they could see. In response, we're told they followed Him. Again, we have to be cautious not to read something into that statement that was probably not meant. Following Him was nearly certainly meant literally just as it had been thus far in Matthew's Gospel. We're in no way told that as with the overture to the rich man to sell everything and follow him that part of healing these two blind men was afterward him reaching out and saying follow me very likely it was because yeshua was on his way to jerusalem for the passover festival that they followed and they were excited to be able to join in this festival perhaps for the first time in years if not ever Well, next week we'll open Chapter 21 and learn about what is best known as the Triumphal Entry.